Last week, another enterprising scientist, Professor Harry Atwater, told of those solar receptors in the sky sending power to us right now using microwaves. This time, more innovations to make a difference. Professor, how can you work on so many fronts to do with tackling climate change all at once? Many of the approaches to tackling climate change are actually related to one another by fundamental processes and energy conversion. And that's my area of scientific interest is fundamental energy conversion processes. Okay, let's start with carbon capture and storage. Now, this has been very controversial because many things are ambitious, but ultimately they seem not to add up. They're small experimental plants and so on, but now you have something promising. What is it? To make a meaningful difference in the quantity of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we have to capture it at scale, and that scale is the gigaton scale. Since humans started putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we've accumulated 800 gigatons in the atmosphere. That's the scale at which we have to operate. So it's useful to ask, where in nature does carbon dioxide capture already operate at that scale? And one of those places is in the oceans, the world's oceans, even as we speak, are sequestering approximately 30% of the emissions coming from the atmosphere. They're sequestered into the shallow ocean layer at the air-water interface where waves interact with the winds, and they are enriching carbon in the shallow ocean, and they are acidifying the ocean. And if you wanted to actually turn that into an efficient process for further drawdown of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, the first step you would want to do is to drive that process faster by decarbonizing the shallow ocean. And so we've developed an electrochemical process for doing that, for stripping the CO2 out of the shallow ocean, the dissolved inorganic carbon. We can turn it into a CO2 stream that you can then deposit in a stable geologic reservoir like a depleted oil and gas well. And that's something that has generated quite a bit of excitement. It looks quite scalable. And we're working with large energy partners to scale that as quickly as we can. Now, I've got a picture of the entire littoral zone, as it's called, you know, the uh, shallow part of the ocean. It's huge. And to make that different balance to work in your favour means that your process has got to be applied all over this vast, vast area. That's right. The scale is global. The scale is vast. It's gigaton scale. But we can already get started. I should mention that the work was born in the labs here at Caltech. It is now being translated by a company that emerged from Caltech called Captura. Captura is an early-stage company here in California that's scaling this process. And so the question is, what scale makes a difference? If we can get from the current scale we're at now, which is tons to hundreds of tons, to kilotons to megatons, then we can begin to show that we are drawing down carbon dioxide, that we can relate the decarbonization of the ocean to the further drawdown from the atmosphere. The work so far looks promising with regard to doing this at a cost that people are willing to pay for carbon capture, which is the crucial detail. So if I'm walking down in 10 years' time when your application is, let's say, all around the coastline of Australia, what, what, what will it look like? The way it would look is, as we scale this process, we're going to look to use 
already capitalized infrastructure because it's available already. So we aim to use places where water is already being pumped in places like cooling for thermal power plants or to reuse infrastructure like oil and gas platforms and floating platforms that have been used for hydrocarbon extraction. They're already available, they're in the ocean. They are often coupled to stable geologic reservoirs, so it's a perfect co-location of the capture and the sequestration. Beyond that, we imagine building floating platforms that will enable, coupled to the ocean currents, to decarbonize shallow ocean water that are then conveyed worldwide by the thermoclines and circulating ocean currents all over the world. And the way to think about this is, so imagine you opened a can of club soda on your table. And the club soda is bubbly, and you taste it as you drink the club soda. If you left it on your table overnight, it would go flat. And that's because the CO2 came out of the water into the air. The concentration was higher in the water than in the air, so it escaped into the air. If we run the reverse process, if we make the concentration lower in the water than it is in the air, we'll further draw down CO2 from the atmosphere. And we can use the ocean currents as the conveyor belts to carry that water that is used for ocean drawdown on a global scale. The things we're doing at the moment for us, of course, are the seagrasses. The great advantage there is that they bury, they sequester the carbon automatically. In fact, it goes down metres and metres and metres, and they just absorb more. You're going to then reduce the amount of CO2 and keep it out of the system. That's right. The overall challenge of carbon dioxide capture and removal is so vast that we need a whole portfolio of biotic, such as seagrass or kelp approaches. We need abiotic or essentially inorganic approaches to doing this. There is right now an incredible mismatch between the demand for capture and removal of CO2 and our ability to do it. So an all-hands-on-deck moment where the marine sciences, chemical sciences, atmospheric sciences need to come together and really mobilize. Another example, which is really exciting, how are you using sunlight to do this sort of work? Nature, of course, uses photosynthesis, an amazing process, to capture and fix carbon in the leaves of plants using the chlorophyll pigments in leaves. That's, of course, what sustains the life and growth of plants. That is essentially nature harvesting light by absorbing the light in the leaf of the plant and generating chemical fuels. And there are tiny reaction centers in the leaves of the plant, fuel generation centers. So here at Caltech, we are focusing on the light harvesting and generation of solar fuels by not natural photosynthesis, but by what's called artificial photosynthesis. We use materials like the ones that you find in solar panels, semiconductors that we know can be scaled to a global scale for electricity generation. And instead of generating electricity, we're using those charge carriers to drive the chemical reactions similar to the ones that are used in photosynthesis. So we can use semiconductors nowadays that can take carbon dioxide and reduce carbon dioxide to fuel products. We can reduce them to intermediates like carbon monoxide or methanol or methane. We can even go in some of the latest work that we're doing here in the Liquid Sunlight Alliance, we can go all the way to chemical compounds that closely resemble jet fuel. Jet fuel for aircraft? That's right. So 
this requires doing what nature does well, which is to be incredibly selective in the chemical reaction pathway, not to make just everything or anything, but to make the particular thing that you want. Jet fuel is a chemical compound. It's a liquid, of course, we're very familiar with it. It's kerosene, it's very similar to the gasoline we put in our cars. And it has between seven and 17 carbon atoms. And that's essentially what makes liquid jet fuel. And so we're developing these processes using artificial photosynthesis to directly make the same chemical compounds that have the same properties as jet fuel. I'd imagine that that's a little way off to being applied. That's right. So the work we're doing here at Caltech is very much on the basic research side. But let me just note that when I was a graduate student, I was working on photovoltaics, and the world's capacity for generating solar energy was in the megawatt scale worldwide, not even enough to run a fraction of the power needs of our campus here. Today, we have gone a million-fold higher. Last year, the world, thanks to the growth of photovoltaic technology and manufacturing, reached the terawatt scale for photovoltaics. So I've seen in my own professional lifetime solar energy scale. So that's the thing that gives me confidence that things like artificial photosynthesis could scale as well. You know one of my heroes involved in that in the University of New South Wales, Martin Green, do you not? Yes, yes. Martin is a friend of mine. And so I enjoyed a very nice visit in his lab in uh, New South Wales. And Martin was particularly innovative, a real pioneer who developed and really drove not only the basic development, but actually all of the tricks of the trade to scalably fabricate and manufacture the silicon solar cells that are now the basis of our terawatt scale solar industry. Indeed, somebody from the professor from the University of Curtin in Perth said that last year, 80% of the electricity in WA, in Western Australia or Perth, actually came from roofs which are designed by the technology of Martin Green. But going back, before you get to jet fuel, the work on harnessing the light in that way to do other sorts of things with other products, what has that reached so far? So far, we've been able to generate hydrogen, molecular hydrogen gas, using artificial photosynthesis by splitting water at an efficiency of greater than 19%. So for reference... Natural photosynthesis is generally about 1% or less efficient in a leaf, for example, going from light to chemical fuel. On the other hand, a solar panel on your roof typically is about 15 to 20% efficient at generating electricity. So in the lab, and I don't want to imply that we have made a scalable or affordable prototype yet, the scaling is yet to come, but we've been able to demonstrate direct solar to hydrogen at almost 20% efficiency. We've been able also to produce carbon monoxide, which is a basic building block of chemical fuels, also at more than 19% efficiency. Making jet fuel is a much more complex process, and we're at a much earlier stage in the work. So many of these examples will become realistic products. You hope in what sort of time zone? Yeah, let's think and reflect on what was the time scale for solar energy. You know, if the inventions of the solar cell happened at Bell Labs in the 1950s, Martin Green came along in the 1980s and made huge progress in raising the efficiency. 
it was in the 2000s that that efficiency became high enough to merit worldwide investment in solar manufacturing. And it's really only in the last five years that we've seen solar energy reach the point that it has actually energy supply significance. So that time scale, roughly was 60 years from invention, I would say it was 30 years from innovation, the kind of innovations that Martin made. So I would say we began with solar fuels 50 years ago. The innovation stage really happened in 2010. Give us another decade or so, but I think that's still relevant on the timescale of climate for us to see a way to produce scalable results. Well, let's hope so. My final question, both in terms of government financing and also private financing, do you have enough coming in to help you get what you need? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So the answer is relative to the challenge at hand, the answer is worldwide way too small. It's our most urgent scientific and technological problem. It's a problem that comes with a deadline. The climate is already changing and we need to work as fast as possible. I would say though that there's a natural pace at which you can sensibly make investments. And it is certainly welcome that in the last year, that level of investment, both on the government and the private side, has reached a level that we can take advantage of and scale. The other thing I want to mention is that the big need in addition to money is talent. And that's an area where training young people who are eager to join this new emerging industry is one of our foremost concerns. And this is very important that we train and educate young people about how they can play a role in their future profession. So this is an invitation, young people, get with it. Absolutely, well, they don't need to be told. They just need to be guided to learn how they can help. They absolutely want to, much more so than any previous generation. They're eager, and we have to capitalize on their eagerness. Thank you, and good luck. Thank you. Professor Harry Atwater, Chair of Engineering and Applied Science at Caltech, and a friend of Dr. Martin Green from the University of New South Wales, who's held the world record for solar efficiency for 32 years. Both have lots of fun, as you may have gleaned.